This podcast is brought to you by ClearBridge Investments. Meet an evolving economy confidently with ClearBridge Active Equities, the foundation of a resilient portfolio. ClearBridge, a Franklin Templeton company. Go to clearbridge.com to learn more. In 1989, the Dow was below 3,000. The Berlin Wall fell. George H.W. Bush became president and The Simpsons first aired on TV. That same year, a pioneering RIA opened for business in Atlanta. Fast forward 32 years, and Hamrick Berg has $10 billion in assets under management. This is Greg Bartalis, editor-in-chief of Barron's Wealth and Asset Management Group. My guest today is Andy Berg, co-founder of Hamrick Berg, which was named to Barron's 2021 list of America's top 100 RIA firms. Andy will describe how his firm has grown over three decades, discuss which business practices remain as relevant now as in 1989, and explain how advisors can achieve organic growth both today and tomorrow. And he'll also discuss the firm's private alts business and how it's helping investors diversify away from stocks and bonds. Andy, welcome. Great. Thank you. Let's go back 32 years. What, what was your eureka moment? <laughs> well, it was really, um, it was really pretty darn simple. Um, 32 years ago, there was almost no conflict-free advice being provided uh, uh, to high net worth folks. And uh, we decided that we were going to give that a shot. The um, world was full of commission-based advisors, whether they were independent um, or at banks and brokerage firms. Um, Selling product, it was the day of 8% loads on mutual funds and big fees and commissions on stocks and bonds and insurance products. Um, So we, David Homerick and I, we were 35 and I was 29, um, needed um, a differentiator if we were going to be successful and have any chance of attracting um, folks with wealth. So the whole premise was um, we're going to be fee only, really the first in Atlanta, and uh, sit on the same side of the table um, as our client, if nothing else. They knew that we were going to give them advice that we thought there was, that was in their best interest because we weren't going to get paid any more or any less. So that was the crux of it. Um, you know, we borrowed $100,000 from my father to start the business. Um, and uh, it was a, a bit of a flyer, but we um, had confidence uh, in our model and we were able to um, attract a few clients and brick by brick start adding uh, clients uh, and a couple employees over the early years. The decision to do that, especially at such a young age, um, especially now, seems pretty audacious. I, I, it's really signaled a lot of confidence and foresight. Um, what made you willing to actually go for it as opposed to just muse about it? Well, um, it was, uh, again, our, our fee-only belief um, uh, that we could um, attract uh, clients because our idea just made better sense than the advice that was being provided at the time. Um, but yeah, we were really young. And, you know, candidly, if, um, heaven forbid, we would have failed, um, it wouldn't be wouldn't have been the worst thing in the world. Um, David and I both were uh, didn't have any kids at the time, um, but it was really the confidence uh, in our model 
Um, we had certainly had confidence in ourselves. Um, we were, you know, working 24 seven at the time for, you know, almost no money, but, uh, the belief that over time, that type of advice would, um, uh, attract folks just made sense to us. Yeah. I mean, time has borne that out. Uh, was there demand immediately from the get-go organically? Was that palpable or did you kind of have to change people's behavior given that this was such a new phenomenon given the time you were operating in? Completely had to change people's behavior. Uh, but, you know, explaining to somebody that when they invested in a mutual fund with $100,000 that on day two, their account said $92,000 was... Um, a pretty easy concept to <laughs> to deliver yeah. and saying that we could invest in, um, you know, XYZ mutual fund at Schwab mm -hmm. and day two, you were still going to have $100,000 in your account. Um, you know, that that resonated. Absolutely. I can can imagine. Um, well, let's step back and widen the lens for a moment. Um, and for listeners, explain, you know, what kind of clients do you serve today? We have a pretty broad client base. Um, I would say our sweet spot are um, folks that have two to fifteen million dollars to invest. We have some um, slightly smaller, a million dollars is our minimum, and then we have larger clients which are in our family office group um, that have different needs, both on the investment and the planning side. Mm -hmm. So um, you know, we have about. 2000 clients and, um, we're approaching 11 billion now under management. So the average client is about $5 million, um, in assets that we are managing. Could you give a ballpark figure on how much of that has been achieved organically? So we've done five acquisitions and the total of those at the time of the acquisition is, is about a billion two. So the rest would be organic. And of course, you know, the folks that we've had join us, Sammy Grant uh, being the most recent, of course, they've, they've all grown since. But the, if you add up the assets of the five that we have done over the, over the 15 years, um, it totals just over a billion. So it's largely organic. Okay. And, and I want to, I'm curious about um, how, how and why you, you grew organically and, and then as well as sharing your story, um, offering advice to people, to advisors listening about how they can, to help them grow their business or, organically, if they have anything to share on that count. Yeah, I, I think you're not going to be successful um, if you're not growing your business organically. I mean, you can, the, the, the M&A world is um, uh, competitive, now it's expensive, um, and RIAs that are smaller and growing need to keep their eye on the ball and not probably worry much about M&A until they've created scale and size. Um, organically, um, it's uh, a must for an RIA. You've got, you've got to figure out how to grow organically, and um, we've done it. Um, largely by um, overwhelming our clients with service. And uh, so therefore, 
most of our referrals are coming from our clients. And, uh, you know, we, I think the other thing that, that advisors should be aware of is to, um, you know, ask clients for referrals. Mm-hmm. Only the ones that, only the ones that you think it's appropriate. People say some people say that you should ask all of your clients for referrals. I, I don't fall in that camp. Um, I think most of the clients um, are receptive to the suggestion, uh, but some, and you can read them. Um, it doesn't go over great, right? So, but but then th- that that doesn't preclude those particular clients from referring you business. You just you know work your tail off and do a great job and you have a good chance of getting referrals from those clients too. What are some of the telltale signs of clients that you deem to be highly receptive to potentially receiving a nudge towards a referral? Well, I think, you know, first of all, um, one of the reasons this business is so fun is you create friendships with your clients. And of course, some of the clients become uh, our friends to begin with. Um, Sometimes people you socialize with um, for me, um, a lot of the people I play a lot of golf, a lot of people I play golf with, um, have become clients over the years. So those are easy, right? You can always ask them because mm-hmm. they're, they're your friends. But when you, um, um, get clients and you obviously, um, are, uh, delving into their, uh, personal life because, you know, the financial planning and money is very, very personal topic. Mm-hmm. then uh, you are likely going to create a, um, a relationship with them and becoming uh, friendly with uh, their family, um, socializing with them, having uh, a lunch or a dinner, um, conversations that become um, both uh, professional and personal. And and over that type of a um, scenario, you are going to create a relationship where they trust you, like you, and are often going to uh, provide referrals to you. You've mentioned, I I read actually that last year was your um, strongest year organically for adding clients, but you also made an acquisition of SG Advisors, um, your fifth. So while acknowledging that M&A is not a focal point for you. When, when you do buy firms, what are you looking for in general? First, back up. I think, I think now it has become um, a focal point, but it's a focal point for just a couple in the firm. Obviously, me being one, we, want, we have 130 employees. We want everybody else to keep their eye on the ball on their job, um, which all centers around serving the client. But... Uh, me, um, our president, Thomas Carroll, and our uh, growth strategist, Bill Bolin, are uh, you know, looking for uh, acquisition possibilities. So, you know, again, going back to what I said before, um, you know, we're 32 years old. We didn't do an acquisition until, I guess, 14 years ago. So we were 18 where we were just keeping our head down and um, growing organically. Now we've reached the stage where if we can make an acquisition um, that makes sense uh, uh, to our firm, and I'll get to those kind of criteria in a second, then, then we want to pull the trigger on that. Mm-hmm. So, but, you know, it, we've done five in, in 14 years, so we have not um, 
made it a make or break for growing our business. It's got to be a fit. And when I say it's a fit, um, the first and foremost, it's got to be a cultural fit. Culture is huge here. Mm-hmm. And um, the last thing we're going to do is bring in a group that would be disruptive to that. So that eliminates, um, you know, most of the field for us. But we've been able to find five, and I sit here and I knock on wood, that have been cultural fits. We haven't um, had one that that hasn't worked yet from that standpoint. Um, So that's been very fortunate, but it's been um, deliberate for sure on our part to make sure that it's a cultural fit. And that generally comes from a relationship um, with, uh, one or more of the principals in the firm prior to us even talking about, um, merging. Mm -hmm. So the cultural fit is one, we want this group, um, or individual, if it's one principal to bring something to the table that is additive Mm -hmm. to our services. So, um, they're doing something that, uh, is going to help, um, the greater, client base of Hamrick Berg. And, um, and that's been true. Uh, and then it's gotta be accretive to the firm, um, either immediately or in the short term. Mm-hmm. So those three things, culture, um, uh, something additive, uh, and then the economics. Okay. So just pretty much opportunistic, uh, acquisitions where, where, where yeah. it makes, makes sense for whatever reason. Um, right. Okay. Just uh, more broadly, do you have any overriding thoughts about the state of M&A and the future of the industry, where, where it's going? Well, you know, obviously M&A is um, very, very hot and will remain hot with valuations where they are. Um, whether they stay here, I think that's a bit of a coin flip. Um, but there's no... Um, slowing right now uh, with either the pace of M&A um, or reduction in valuations as I see it. And the, you know, I talk to a lot of investment bankers and, and they say the same. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that, that becomes an interesting proposition for a firm like us because we're not going to overpay. Um, and uh, likely that means that the acquiring firm is going to really have to see that we are the best fit for them long term. Mm-hmm. And I think that's going to be the case for some. Um, it probably eliminates us making an acquisition of a firm, say, over a billion and a half or two billion. Mm-hmm. But the firms that are, are growing want a cultural fit um, and want to. Um, uh, SG Advisors, perfect example. Um, Sammy Grant was um, growing weary of the administrative burden that he had to um, endure uh, being um, a small firm and all of the things that now he doesn't have to worry about, whether it be, um, you know, uh, back office administration, reporting, HR. Uh, uh, compliance, mm-hmm. investment selection, all of those things, um, you know, he hitched his train to us 
so he can concentrate on what he's good at and he's really good at, which is client service um, and business development. Mm -hmm. So that kind of thing I can see happening repeatedly. And I think if the uh, folks that are interested in, in doing something like that are best served by not going to a very, very large organization, um, a bank, for example, maybe, and, and going to uh, affirm that they can um, keep doing what they like to do. Mm -hmm. You mentioned the importance of culture, um, and I came across a highly entertaining video on YouTube of your firm's <laughs> celebrating its 30th anniversary, and I believe the title was Happy Andiversary. Um, oh. And it, it was, anyway, it's, it's a very amusing, uh, roughly four-minute uh, video with song, fanfare, really nice production values. But I think what shines through is um, there did seem to be a, a palpable sense of, uh, of goodwill and, and whatnot. Uh, tell me a little about that video, if you will, just as a quick diversion. Well, every time I watch it, it makes me cry. <laughs> mm. <laughs> um, no, I remember it really does. It, it was, um, you know, something really special. Obviously, the theme of it was to the uh, song New York, New York. And um, my partners and I uh, decided that we wanted to make our 30th anniversary very special. And um, so we flew everybody to New York and... Uh, had our uh, annual retreat at a hotel in New York. Um, but of course, the, the crux of the trip was um, the celebration of our 30th anniversary and lots of fun and sightseeing in New York. Yeah, it's um, definitely kind of like a chocolate sundae with cherries and whipped cream being poured on and on. It's definitely a delightful thing to check out. Yeah, yeah. And we had fun <laughs> with it. We had, uh, we had a... Uh, um, you know, an opportunity, and I had an opportunity during the retreat to um, talk about uh, all of the other people, or most of the other people that were key um, in growing the firm. So, you know, that was fun. It wasn't just, a, you know, an Andy celebration. It was really a celebration of, of our entire firm and the success that we've had um, in celebrating that and, and you know, then talking about the opportunity that exists for um, everybody here. Okay. Um, and let me just a bit of a harsh pivot, but I, I did want to touch on investing briefly. Um, okay. Tell me about your alts business. Where are you seeing opportunity? Yeah. I mean, well, first of all, the alts um, business has been very important to us. And I guess we were, um, or I know we were early in that game. We've been investing in alts. Um, since early on, I believe we started in 97, um, investing in some real estate. And then we formed our own fund of funds um, in hedge fund, private equity, natural resources. And it's it's been very key to um, provide an additional, uh, additional arrows in our quiver um, that are uncorrelated um, to the stock market. So... Um, arguably everything's expensive now. Um, that's hard to, um, uh, say that anything is, uh, a big, you know, green light and, and we can't, you know, get enough of it, but, um, we do like, uh, alternatives. We do like private debt. 
Um, it's a way for clients to have a fixed income alternative um, that has yields that are you know higher than one percent ish. We do like that. We like certain areas of uh, real estate. Um, we like industrial and warehouses. Um, certain um, there's still we think private equity. Uh, um, funds that are very, very attracted to us, um, taking advantage of dislocation in the markets. So we, we're big believers in it. Obviously, the stock market has provided tremendous returns over the last dozen years or so. Um, we don't think that this pace can continue in the stock market. We see more like um, you know mid-single digit type returns uh, for the next five to seven years. And so therefore, uh, not only do we believe alternatives is a um, great differentiator and, and a diversification tool, but we think it'll provide um, higher returns than uh, public markets. Alternatives, uh, they, they cover a lot of ground. Can you at least uh, discuss briefly where you have greater conviction within the universe of alts? Yeah, and that, those would be what I mentioned. We have greater yeah. conviction in private debt, um, um, income-producing real estate, um, um, generally uh, on the industrial side would be a preference. Uh, and then, um, you know, s small to mid-sized private equity. Mm -hmm. Well, we're we're nearing the end of our time, but uh, before we wrap up, I, I wanted to end by asking you for an actionable idea uh, that listeners can act on, and that's for, for advisors who are looking to grow organically. Um, what's your best time-tested advice that you can give? I really think, and we've talked about it earlier on in the conversation, but I really, really think um, the best way to grow organically is to create the best culture you can uh, within your firm. I think if people like what they're doing, believe in the model that the firm has, then they, were they are going to do a great job serving their clients, and that is just going to lead to organic growth. It's, it's simple, but uh, creating a culture uh, where, you know, folks are engaged and happy uh, is, it, it, it just makes everything better in your firm. Okay. Well, I think time has uh, proven that for your firm. Well, thanks. Sure. Well, thank you so much for joining us. You bet. My guest has been Andy Berg, co-founder of Hamrick Berg. If you like this podcast, please share it. And to hear more, go to barons.com forward slash podcasts. This podcast is brought to you by ClearBridge Investments. Meet an evolving economy confidently with ClearBridge Active Equities, the foundation of a resilient portfolio. ClearBridge, a Franklin Templeton company. Go to clearbridge.com to learn more.